Well, how many of you folks here this morning um, have a job that, if you're really honest, you kind of say you really don't like that well? You guys got a job like that? I see a few of you kind of tentatively raised your hands. Well, for all of you that really kind of don't like your job this morning, um, I want to share with you some photos that kind of fall under the heading of, well, you thought your job was bad. Well, in, in the, the third place entry that I want to show you in this contest of, and you thought your job was bad, is this. Now, how would you like to do that? Ooh. Well, I'll tell you, that kind of makes my heart go pitter-pat on that job. And now for the second place entry on, and you thought your job was bad, how about this one? Yeah, boy, I'll tell you, one, uh, one mistake there could really ruin your whole day, couldn't it? And now for the final entry, the first place entry of, and you thought your job was bad, wouldn't you just love that? Oh, my! Well, after looking at these pictures, some of you are probably thinking, well, maybe not. My job's not so bad after all. <laughs> well, a lot of things in life are that way. You know, when you, um, when you look at them, really it's kind of a matter of what you compare it to. That's really kind of what it boils down to. And this morning we're going to look at a comparison in the Scriptures. We're going to look at uh, the Apostle Paul's comparison of the Old Covenant, or the Jewish Law, with the New Covenant of faith. And both were wonderful, but the glory of the New Covenant was vastly greater than the glory of the Old Covenant when you compare the two. And the title of this morning's message is The Glorious New Covenant. And before we move on, I want to ask you this time truly a serious question, and that is, how many of you truly and sincerely want to be godly? Good, and I'm, glad, I'm very gratified to see that, that a lot of you really want to be godly men and women because that's what we're called to as Christians. And I ask this question because one of the topics that we're going to talk about this morning is how to become conformed to the image of God. Or in other words, how we can become godly, because that's what that is. And the process leading to godliness is a little bit different than we might expect. Well, before we dive into the passage, uh, let's look briefly at the background of this passage. The letter of 2 Corinthians was actually the third letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. It was a church that he had founded on his second missionary journey. And the church seemed to have really more of its share of problems than was even imaginable. And 1 Corinthians, that letter, was actually written to address a lot of the problems that were occurring in the church at that time. Amongst the problems that were going on in the church was they had a, a problem with rampant immorality that was going on in the church. And they also had some factions that were forming around some folks that were prominent within the church. And hearing a short time after writing 1 Corinthians that these problems hadn't been resolved, what the Apostle Paul did is he actually made a very quick and hurried trip back to Corinth to try and correct some of those problems. And, and as he left, 
he wrote as kind of a follow-up letter a very, very strong, powerful letter to the Corinthians, very severe. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, he calls it his sorrowful letter. And we've actually lost it. We don't really quite know exactly what it says, except that we know that it really, it really laid the lumber on him. Well, finally, the Corinthian church repented. And this letter of 2 Corinthians is the letter that Paul wrote after they had repented to remind, to express his joy in their repentance and also to remind them of just a couple of things that they needed to put in order uh, in addition to what he had talked about them previously. And one of those ongoing matters, as I mentioned, was a divisive group of people who continued to just absolutely rag on Paul uh, in questioning his credentials as an apostle. And Paul refers to these detractors in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 10, and he says, For they, these detractors, say, His letters are weighty and strong, but his personal appearance is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Nice thing to say about your founding pastor, isn't it? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, which is right before our text, Paul is beginning to respond to these detractors, but what he does is he inserts in the middle of this response a 14-verse kind of parenthesis right in the middle of that, and that is what we're going to look at today. Now, what this parenthesis is, is it compares the old covenant of the Mosaic Law with the new covenant of faith in Jesus Christ. And from this passage, we're going to come to understand how glorious the new covenant of faith in Christ is when compared with the old covenant of the Mosaic Law. And along the way, we're also going to learn that the process that leads to godliness is part of the new covenant, and truly quite simple. And with all this in view, the big idea of today's message is live in the brilliant glory of the new covenant, not in the fading glory of the old covenant law. Now please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 18, and read along silently with me. That's 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 18, and if you don't have a Bible, you'll find one in the pocket of the seat in front of you there. And the Apostle Paul says this, he says, such confidence we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory, in this case, has no glory because of the glory which surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, 
We use great boldness in our speech. And are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their hearts were hardened. For until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. Because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Now the first point we'll look at today is the characteristics of the Old Covenant. And the first characteristic that the Old Covenant is, is that it consists of a bunch of rules. It consists of a bunch of rules. And look with me at verses 5 and 6 of our text. It says, For our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of the New Covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. And notice that Paul describes the Old Covenant as being of the letter. And what he's referring to here is he's referring to the Ten Commandments which Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. And all of you know about the Ten Commandments, right? It's a bunch of do's and don't rules. It's don't worship any other gods. Don't make any idols or worship them. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Do keep the Sabbath holy. Do honor your father and your mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. And don't covet. A bunch of do's and don'ts. It's pretty straightforward. And you're, but you're probably thinking at this point, so what? Well, I'm glad you asked because the list of rules leads us to the second characteristic of the Old Covenant. And that it is that the Old Covenant kills. And look with me again at verse 6. God also made us adequate as servants in the New Covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You see, the rules of the Ten Commandments are pretty straightforward and easy to understand, right? But try living all ten of them. Ever try that? Well, that's a little more tough, isn't it? And Paul talks specifically about this using the Tenth Commandment in particular as an example and in Romans 7, verses 7 through 9, he comments about this experience. He says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting unless the law had said, the Tenth Commandment, do not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was alive once apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. You see, the law brings out the sinful tendencies in our flesh. And even as Christians, it does the same thing, doesn't it? It doesn't. It's kind of like telling a young kid, hey, don't touch the hot stove. Well, what happens when you tell the kid not to touch the hot stove? They want to touch it. They want to go over and touch it. And it's kind of like the same thing, kind of like the hot stove. You see, once we know about the law, we want to touch it. 
And once we break the law, the consequences of sin come to pass. And the Bible's very clear on that point. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And trying to live the law in your own power, oh, it just leads to nothing but frustration and despair. And the Apostle Paul expressed his frustration as a result of trying to do that very same thing, trying to live out all the do's and don'ts, in Romans chapter 7, verses 22 through 24. He said this, he said, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man, but I see a different law in the work of the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? You sense the frustration there? You know, there are a lot of do's and don'ts in the Scriptures. And even in the New Testament, there's a lot of do's and don'ts. And I see so many frustrated Christians who have reduced their Christianity to just trying to do the do's and don'ts and obey all the do's and the don'ts. And don't get me wrong, God wants us to obey His commands. There's no doubt about that. But if you're trying to do that in your own power, you will end up frustrated. And you will fail. And you won't end up godly as a result of just focusing on doing the do's and the don'ts. You see, God has provided a much better way in the New Covenant. And we're going to talk about what that way is when we get to talking about the characteristics of the New Covenant. Now let's move on and look at the third characteristic of the Old Covenant, which is that the Old Covenant had a fading glory. And we see this in verse 7 where Paul comments, he says, but if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory on his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to not be even more with glory? And in this verse, Paul uses an Old Testament story about Moses and his glowing face to illustrate his point. And this story is found back in Exodus, and I'll just show it to you really briefly. It says, It came about when Moses was coming down the Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony, the Ten Commandments, were in Moses' hand as he was coming down the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been speaking with God. You see, Moses glowed. And the only problem was is that as he came down the mountain and he came away from God's presence, what happened to the glow? Went away. It went away. And the old covenant law is much the same way. You see, it has a fading glory when compared to the new covenant. And that's what Paul was saying. The law is wonderful, but it was never meant as a means of saving sinful men. And it was also never meant as a means of sanctifying 
or making holy, really, Christians. It wasn't that either. It was not meant to be used like that. And it kind of reminds me of some pictures that I ran across the other day that kind of visually illustrate this concept of it was not meant to be used like that. I want to show you the first one, and that's the dog bowl. It was not meant to be used like that. Or the next one, the black marker. It was not meant to be used like that. Imagine cleaning up that poor kid. And then last but not least, I love this one. This is the forklifts. They were not meant to be used like that. <laughs> and it's similar to the pictures that uh, we just looked at here. The law was not meant to save or sanctify men because it has a fading glory. So now we've looked at the characteristics of the Old Covenant. Now let's look at the characteristics of the New Covenant. And the first characteristic of the New Covenant is that the New Covenant is of the Spirit rather than the letter of the law. For the, and I want to look at this verse 6 again. And it says, God made us adequate as servants in the New Covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, the question is, what does Paul mean when he says that the New Covenant is of the Spirit? And I think that Paul gives us a clue as to what he's talking about later on in the text, over in verse 17, when he says, Now, this, now the Lord is the Spirit... And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. You see, when we become Christians, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, and He takes up resonance in us. And in this passage, Paul tells us that since the Spirit of God lives inside of us, that we now have liberty or freedom. And you see, when the Spirit is the one who empowers us to obey God, and sets us free, He sets us free from that life of frustration and despair. Because the Spirit gives life. And the Spirit accomplishes this as we trust Him to empower us and set us free. Faith is the key to all of this. You know, I'd encourage you, by faith today, yield control of your life to the Holy Spirit. And climb out of the driver's seat of your life. And by faith, trust the Holy Spirit to empower you to win victory over sin. Does victory happen instantaneously? No, it doesn't. Not usually. But it will happen. Why? Because the Spirit is there and He brings liberty. He brings freedom. And trust the Spirit of God to make it happen in you because the new covenant is of the Holy Spirit. And the second characteristic of the new covenant is that it imparts life. And again, look back with me at verse 6. It says, God made us adequate as servants in the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You see, John 10.10, 10, Jesus told us that He came that we might have life and have it. Remember what that word was? Abundantly. 
full, fulfilled life. And the Holy Spirit is the one who makes that happen. See, the old covenant brings death, but the new covenant brings abundant life. And the third characteristic in the new covenant is that it abounds in unfading glory. Look with me at verse 9, where the Apostle Paul says this. He says, For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. You see, the resurrected Jesus Christ, who now is in heaven, is ablaze with glory forevermore. And here's how he's described in Revelation chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. It says, His head and his hair were like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And the same guy who wrote Revelation, the Apostle John, tells us this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. He says, Beloved, we are now children, and it has not appeared as yet will be like, but we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. You see, Jesus radiates glory like the light of the sun. And when we see Him someday face to face, we'll be just like Him. And we'll radiate glory just like Him. Remember the last verse of that great hymn, Amazing Grace? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. See, that's going to be us. We're going to be just like Him. And the new covenant abounds in unfading glory. And that glory will someday radiate from us. And the fourth characteristic in the new covenant is that it breeds boldness. Look with me at verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, having such hope, we use great boldness in our speech. You see, Paul was confident someday, and that's why he's used that word therefore, that someday he would be glorified. And he would glow too. Just like the Savior. And he was excited about that prospect. And see, this confidence and this excitement, which the Apostle Paul called hope, caused him to speak boldly the Gospel. Well, how about you? Are you bold and forthright in sharing the gospel with the people that you come across? And I think that really few of us can honestly say we are, and myself included in that. Why? I think to a certain degree, it's because we don't really understand how insanely glorious being in Christ's presence will be someday. I don't think we quite get that. Or else, we don't really believe it. If we did, we would be bold. So what can we do? I think we can ask the Lord to make His glory real to us and 
that we would remind ourselves of our heritage in Christ, what we are going to be like someday when we stand in His presence. And I'm telling you, this confidence breeds boldness. It bred it in Paul, and it will also breed it in us. And the fifth characteristic of the new covenant is that it removes the veil between us and God. Look with me at verses 15 and 16. It says this, But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And the question that comes to mind when I read this passage is, is you know, what's the veil that Paul is talking about here? And the veil in Paul's day was, was different than the veil that we think about. In Paul's day, the veil was kind of like a long robe that you pulled down over your head and pulled it over your face uh, so that no one could see at all what you looked like. Kind of like a burqa in some senses. But here Paul is talking about a veil over the heart. And what Paul is using this metaphor at is to indicate that those who trust in their own efforts to save them by performing the old law are separated from God. There's a veil there. And they refuse to turn to Christ, and the result is separation. And in a larger sense, trusting in our own efforts to do anything to please the Lord and earn His own favor brings separation when we try and earn favor ourselves. And there may be some of you here today who are trying to live a good life. And you're hoping that someday when you stand before God that your good works will be enough to get you in. And if this is you, your heart is veiled from the Lord. And you're separated from Him. You see, the only thing that can remove this veil is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. And I would encourage you, if that's you, if you're in this boat today, then call out to the Lord Jesus Christ today and tell Him, Lord, save me and remove the veil of separation between me and you. And the sixth and last characteristic of the New Covenant is that it makes true godliness possible. Look with me at verse 18. It says this, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Now notice in this verse that the starting point is having an unveiled face. You will never become godly without trusting Christ to save you. Self-effort won't get you there. And now Paul introduces a new word picture, that of beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Now some of you have a New International Version in front of you. Any of you guys have a New International? Okay, we've got a couple of you with New International there. And you're probably wondering, what in the world am I talking about? Because verse 18 says this, It says, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, which is the Spirit. 
Now, the issue here is that the Greek word used in this verse can be translated either way. It can be translated as beholding as in a mirror or, reflect, or reflecting the image. And when you look at the context of this verse, uh, you really can make a case for translating it either way. But I think that the best clue as to how to translate this particular verse comes from a similar passage that Paul also writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. And he says this, For now we see dimly in the mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been known. And in this passage, Paul talks about our current relationship with Jesus here on this earth as if we were seeing him kind of dimly in a mirror. And remember that in those days, mirrors were made out of metal back then. And the image, since they were not perfectly flat, the image that you saw in the mirror was kind of distorted and wavy. And you see, while we're here on this earth, we don't see God perfectly. We don't. See, we have sin-infested bodies, and they influence what, you know, how we act, and we have minds that aren't totally regenerated. But when someday we leave this world and stand in His presence, then we'll see Him just exactly as He is. No mirror. There'll be no more beholding Him as in a mirror. And thus I believe that what the Apostle Paul was trying to say in 2 Corinthians 3.18 is more along the lines of what the New American Standard translates it like this. That we're beholding him as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. And in this verse, the word that the Apostle Paul uses for beholding the glory of the Lord means to gaze with wide eyes at something that is just utterly astonishing. And it means to look intently at the Lord and be amazed at what we see. And a question for you. How, how do we go about beholding the glory of the Lord? How do we do that? And I throw that question out to you. How do we do that? By drawing close to Him. Okay. But He's up there. I'm down here. Relationship. Ah, good. I like that word. Any other thoughts? How do we behold the glory of the Lord? How do we do that? We learn about Him where? The Scripture. So the Scripture. We praise Him, that too. But generally that comes out of what we know from Him in the Scripture. That's a good call. Because, see, we see the Lord in all, the in all of His glory in the Word. That's where we see Him. You see, the Scriptures are the complete revelation of what our beautiful God is like. They tell us how He thinks. They tell us how He feels. They tell us how He reacts. And we behold His glory as we seek Him in our Bibles. As we purposefully seek to know Him. And as we adjust our hearts to who He really is as revealed in the scriptures. And the verb tense that Paul uses for this is that we need to continually keep on beholding the glory of the Lord all the time. 
It's an ongoing process. And the result of this, as we keep on continually gazing at our astonishing Lord, we are transformed into the same image we're looking at. We become God-like. We become godly from one degree of glory to another. The Greek word that Paul uses for this transformation is the word from which we get our English word, metamorphosis, which is the process by which the little worm becomes the beautiful butterfly. You see, it's not Bible study that transforms us. It's not prayer that transforms us. It's not fellowship that transforms us. It's not coming to church that transforms us. Now all these things are indispensable parts of the transformation process, but it's drawing near and staying near to the Lord that makes us like Him. And the Bible commentator Albert Barnes said like this. He put it, by contemplating the resplendent face of the blessed Redeemer, we are changed into something of the same image. It's the law of our nature that we are molded by the persons with whom we associate and by the objects with which we contemplate. So now we've looked at the characteristics of the Old Covenant And we've looked at the characteristics of the New Covenant. Now let's finish by talking about the application of the New Covenant. And there are are two applications that I would like to suggest about living in the brilliant glory of the New Covenant, not in the fading glory of the Old Covenant law. And the first one is, don't reduce your Christianity to rules, Don't do it. And I know I've mentioned this already, but it's such a common problem that it bears repeating. If you're a Christian, if your Christianity is nothing but living by a set of biblical do's and don'ts, it will suck you dry. It will. And you won't be able to live up to them. And Satan, being the kind fellow that he is, when you don't live up to him, he will gladly kick the snot out of you. And there's nothing more joyless than a Christian whose faith is nothing but a set of do's and don'ts. And second, instead of a list of biblical rules, be transformed into his image by beholding him and staying near to him. You see, as Jason commented, being being godly is all about relationship, not rules. You see, being godly, and I would challenge you this morning to spend time looking at his glorious face as revealed in the scripture each morning. Like Moses, go to the Lord and say, Lord, show me your glory each and every morning. Gaze at him 
and enjoy Him and praise Him and thank Him and think about Him and talk to Him each and every morning. And then for the rest of the day, have an ongoing discussion with Him and a conversation about everything that you see and you do. And that's called abiding. That's what the Scripture calls that, abiding in Christ. And over time, you will begin to comprehend how much He really loves you. And you'll begin to love Him back. And you know what? A funny thing will happen. A funny thing will happen. You'll start to become like Him. And you won't even realize it. And you begin hearing His voice. And you'll begin obeying Him because you love Him. And nearly effortlessly, you will end up doing all the do's and the don'ts. And you will radiate joy. In his influential book, Experiencing God, Henry Blackaby made this very insightful comment. He says, I think God is crying out and shouting to us, don't just do something, stand there. Enter into a love relationship with me and get to know me, adjust to me, love me, let me love you and reveal myself to you. And oh, that we would heed Blackaby's words and just stand there right next to him. Let's pray.